Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this promise that is fulfilled in everyone who is in Christ Jesus here today that you are our portion. Father, we have nothing to offer to you and there is no merit in one square inch or molecule of our being. But we, Lord, thoroughly lost, dead in our trespasses and sins, were caught hopelessly in the miry clay, the filth and depravity of our sinful condition. And Jesus Christ, our Lord, resurrected us unto newness of life. The Spirit called us forth from the tomb like Lazarus, and we came out in the grave clothes of our deadness and sinfulness fell away, and we beheld Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, and His resurrection power and our salvation. We are here gathered because of that event in each one of our hearts who know Christ in that saving way. We are here because You are worthy and glorious and worthy of praise, O Heavenly Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. It is the Holy Spirit that gives us the ability, and so the triune God of Scripture awakens our heart with the joy of salvation and quickens our lips with praise. Now I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would use the means of your spoken, proclaimed word to awaken our understanding so that we might have more meditations and more surety and our explanation of the gospel to those who ask a reason for the hope within us. I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be bound together according to the truth of your infallible word. We pray all of this, Lord, would serve the great kingdom-building enterprise that you have for your church. We pray that we would glorify you and join with the hosts of heaven who Yahweh Sabaoth commissions to sing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. What a great privilege to open up his scriptures together this morning. Let's do so in Hebrews chapter 7 today. Hebrews 7 will be our primary text, so turn there with me, and in a moment, we'll stand for the reading of God's holy word. Today's message is entitled, The Mystery of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, that enigmatic, that mysterious and shadowy figure of the Old Covenant, is used as a type and as a reference point to explain the high priestly order of Jesus Christ, what is unique about His office and His role in redemption. This is, truly, uh, this is truly a notion and, and a reality that is deep and profound in every possible way. And the author of Hebrews therefore draws our attention to these things by opening up by the power of the Holy Spirit the meaning of Old Testament figures and pictures going back to Genesis 14 and to Psalm 110. We'll touch on those two references in the course of this message so you can keep your finger in those as well. But for the meantime, we'll be in Hebrews 7, verses 1 through 11. And at this point, with your Bible open, I'd ask you to stand for the reading of God's holy word, if you are able. The infallible word of Christ comes to us in the great book of Hebrews, chapter 7, 11, as follows. For this, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. 
He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the peoples, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. Verse 6. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Verse 11. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? This is the word of God. You may be seated. <clears throat> this morning, the theological significance of Melchizedek's unique priesthood hits us plainly, clearly, boldly, and in complex and shades and facets of meaning that are incredible to behold in Hebrews 7. This moment, however, has been anticipated in the text of Hebrews in the context of the book prior to the section where the author charges into headlong the meaning of the higher order of, Melchizedek, of the Melchizedekian, if you will, priesthood. The specific reference to Psalm 110 first appears, at least in this portion, that is with reference to Melchizedek, in chapter 5, verse 6. As he says also in another place, the author records, quote, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So you see by this reference and a few others, there is an anticipation of an explanation, an expounding of the meaning of the order of Melchizedek associated, related to the office of Christ. Followed, following this reference in chapter 5, verse 6, there are others. 5.11 says as much. I'm sorry, 5.10 we read, being designated, that is, again, speaking of Christ, being designated by God, high priest, after the order of Melchizedek. Here again, the author alludes to a prior reference in the Old Covenant Scriptures, namely Psalm 110, which records, or uh, Psalm 110, which adds theological significance to a prior event from Genesis 14. Yet at this point, the author does not, again, go into a lengthy explanation, but it's almost as if he interrupts himself. Before explaining, that is to say, the order of the Melchizedekian priesthood, he says in verse 11, but about this, again, chapter 5, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. That's a passage that we have covered in what follows, that we have covered in recent weeks. I think it's important to note that, was that, that which he will explain about the Melchizedekian priesthood is so significant that he arrests himself in midstream, he interrupts himself, uh, so to speak, with a stiff warning against apostasy. And that is to convey this truth, or we can infer at least this much, 
that what he is about to explain about the priesthood of Jesus Christ is difficult for mere minds to grasp. You can't just be a passive, inactive uh, listener who is just nodding along and distracted by other thoughts and be able to grasp the fullness of what he is about to say. And yet what he is about to explain is so important that he does not want to suffer anything by way of distraction, sin, or dullness of hearing to stand in the way of the gospel preached in this manner. Which begs the question, are we listening today? Further begs the question, are we capable of hearing today? Let us pray that the Holy Spirit would remove from our spiritual ears any dullness of hearing. So the reality of the priesthood of Jesus Christ according to the order of Melchizedek is something that we readily grasp and can ourselves explain as we have it expounded for us in the book of Hebrews in chapter 7. There's reference um, in the text to the Abrahamic covenant that we covered in recent weeks. As we continue to read through chapter 6, we get to verse 13 and the author says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. It goes on, as we've talked about in prior weeks, to declare how God, to establish the certainty of this promise to Abraham, guaranteed it with an oath. We also have, the author says, as a steadfast anchor for our souls, the hope in Jesus Christ who went as a forerunner into the inner place behind the curtain. And then at the close of this passage, he says, or this reference he says in verse 20, where Christ has gone as a forerunner in our behalf, again, this reference to Melchizedek that introduces our text today, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Our author, the author of Hebrews, is fully versed in the Old Testament scriptures. It is no accident that he has, in a systematic way, been expounding the meaning of the Abrahamic covenant as it's found in Genesis 15. But just like he retraces his steps in Hebrews 7 to pick up again on the Melchizedekian priesthood that he alluded to in chapter 5, verse 6, he does the same with the Old Testament scriptures. He rewinds a little bit to Genesis 14 and expounds the significance of the interaction between Abraham and that shadowy, kingly, priestly figure, Melchizedek. And so we have two references then in chapters 6 and 7 to the scriptures as we find them in Genesis, chapters 14 and 15. Chapter 14 of Genesis records an encounter with the shadowy and significant Old Testament figure. The mysterious and monumental nature of this exchange between Abraham and Melchizedek, it remained largely unrealized until this very moment in history when the Spirit breathed its meaning into and through the author of Hebrews. Many seemingly disconnected messianic realities of what to expect when that uh, the one promised would come. Many of these seemingly loose ends and disconnected realities are reconciled in the Melchizedekian order of Christ's high priesthood. An important lesson for us. Sometimes things are alluded to in a little more blurry form, if you will, in the Old Covenant. But they come into clear focus in Christ. This is a pattern for us that we see clearly in the book of Hebrews. An understanding of the old typology in the covenantal scriptures 
of the Old Testament revealed and expounded in the apostolic record with specific reference to Christ. And this is no exception. So let us consider this morning what we can learn about Christ looking at Melchizedek and his high priesthood and his kingship through the eyes of the author of the Hebrews heading for you this morning. Melchizedek personifies the following. Number one, a higher order. Melchizedek personifies number two, king and priest, or that is to say the offices of king and priest. Melchizedek thirdly personifies righteousness and peace. And fourthly and finally, major point this morning, Melchizedek personifies son of man and son of God. A higher order, the offices of king and priest, priest, righteousness and peace, and son of man and son of God. This is incredible. These verses that we've read seven in chapter 7, verses 1 through 11, I would like to take them a little bit uh, out of order, if you will. We'll begin with establishing this premise from the Scriptures, expounding the notion that Melchizedek personifies a higher order. And this, uh, this, as it appears in verses 11 through 16, or thereabouts, will be our main concern. That is, he shows in these texts how this higher order of priesthood is revealed in Melchizedek, in Melchizedek, and he gives two arguments about uh, to show that that is the case. And then backtracking in our text this morning, our final three points more briefly, we'll explore how the higher order is unveiled, or how it is evident. That is the distinct nature of the order of the Melchizedekian priesthood fulfilled in Christ. So first of all, higher order. Let us consider, uh, firstly, the, the term order itself. In chapter 7, Hebrews seven eleven, reading again, it says, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order, there's the word, of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? So this word here is important to understanding what is central to the text, the term order. The definition of order as we find it in the lexicons is something along the lines of a post or rank or position. Think of an office holder, uh, somebody who holds, holds civil office and is called to order or govern over a set of affairs. This notion or term order as it appears in the Greek with reference to the Old Covenant Scriptures in the Hebrew as well, the office of priesthood, this idea of order becomes equivalent to character and quality demanded by certain offices. So there is an order, an expectation, a framework, a qualifications that are necessary in order to serve in such and such a capacity. And in this case, it's priesthood. The Levitical priesthood had a particular order or set of qualifying factors that would render somebody capable, able, and certifiable for serving, for acting in that position. That was the order of the Levitical priesthood. If we went back to the scriptures, we would find many details related to this office or call. 
They had to be of a certain age, had to go through so many ceremonial washings, had to be separate in their living conditions and way of life and lifestyle, set apart unto a particular purpose. This was all part and parcel of the order of the Levitical, that is, those descendants of the Levites who were called to serve in this way, the church activities of the Old Testament, if you will. Yet uh, the message of our, uh, of our text today is that there is a higher order still. That is the order of Melchizedek. If this is indeed a higher order, as the author argues, that means that the post, the rank, the position, the necessary qualifications to serve in that particular office, the character and quality demanded by this, the ultimate high priesthood, is more than any mere a son of Levi could ever, or son of Aaron, could ever hope to qualify for. And in fact, brothers and sisters in Christ, there is only one who qualifies for the order of the Melchizedekian priesthood, ultimately speaking. That which Melchizedek himself prefigured is fulfilled and established, and the qualifications are filled by just one, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Now this was prophesied. This higher order was prophesied in Psalm 110. Turn back with me if you would. At the beginning of our Hebrew series, I remarked to you that there are a few commentators who believe that the entire book of Hebrews may well be a sermon framed around and expounding the the chapter of the Psalms, uh, number 110 specifically. And I think you'll find why, as we, I think you'll see why as we read the text of this Psalm of David once again, Psalm 110.1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That was a verse that was central to chapter 1 of Hebrews 1. Speaking of Christ in exalted terms as he has ascended and now is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. We have Christ pictured as a fulfillment of Psalm 110.1. But as we get to Hebrews 7, and Psalm 110 continues, we find Christ is the fulfillment of the rest of the psalm as well. Verse 2, The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power, in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours." The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever, in verse 4, after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of His wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, He will lift up His head. Again, verse 4, B. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is a reference to Christ. It is spoken uh, to him by the Lord himself. It uh, presumes the Trinity, God and three persons. And the Lord, God the Father, has sworn and will not change his mind that Jesus Christ, we find in Hebrews 7, is a priest forever according to the higher order of Melchizedek. And so in the Old Testament, we have the prophecy of this higher order that Melchizedek personified. The argument, as we get back now to Hebrews 7, verses 11 and thereabouts, 
makes this case or makes the case, convinces the reader. It's an argument from implication as to the prophetic nature of what we've just read. Reading again 7.11, the author of Hebrews makes his case. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law. What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Do you grasp his main point? Psalm 110 was a clear prophecy of a distinct priesthood to come. Now, why would the author of Psalm 110, namely David and the Holy Spirit most uh, primarily, why would the author of Psalm 110 declare that there would be a priest to come by the order of Melchizedek if the Aaronic priesthood or the Levitical priesthood was sufficient? The answer is clear, rhetorically. It's, it's a rhetorical question. We can gather, we can infer with certainty that the Levitical priesthood that the people received under the law was insufficient to mediate on behalf of man. That is, the priests and their sacrifices of old could never truly cleanse us from our sins, could never atone for us, could never successfully and fully intercede on our behalf. It was a picture, it was a type, it was a prefiguring, it was a prophecy, but it was not the fulfillment. This was spoken of in the New Testament Scriptures and expounded at great length in the Gospels, in the apostolic record, but it wasn't only prophesied there. The higher order of the Melchizedekian priesthood was prophesied in the Old Testament Scriptures. Psalm 110 declares it emphatically so. The implication is we are looking through this priesthood that we have with us today, putting ourselves in the shoes of the Old Covenant order, unto another one, and there will come a day where a Messiah will arise who will fulfill this order entirely and will satisfy in His own sacrifice of His own flesh the payment for my sins. This will be the sufficient and conclusive fulfillment of what we participate in here. The existence of the higher order of the Melchizedek priesthood was prophesied in the Old Covenant Scriptures. It wasn't just prophesied in Psalm 110, but we see in context that it was also prefigured in Genesis 14, and this is our other Old Testament reference of direct note that is expounded in Hebrews 7. So let's turn there as well, Genesis 14, verses 18 through 20. As you're turning there, note that our author is going to make his argument from this text, an argument from superiority. He's going to show that the Melchizedekian priesthood is indeed a higher order, and he's doing so from this record in the narrative text of Abraham's life in Genesis 14, 18 and following. Here we have, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. That is a powerful parenthesis there. And he blessed him and said, that is, Melchizedek blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abram, by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, 
that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Enner, Eshkol, and Merimni take their share, and so on. Our main uh, point of focus, however, though, is not the interaction between Abram and this king of Sodom, but in fact, Abram and the king of Salem. This king was of an entirely different sort, singular actually in the Old Testament uh, record. He was priest of God Most High. And to this man, Abraham actually paid tithes. Here is demonstrated in the record a hierarchical relationship between the patriarch, Abram, later Abraham, who was extremely significant to the Jewish people, the founder of their faith in many ways, as he's referred to in Scripture, and the forefather of the Jewish nation, extremely significant. This, was, uh, this sounds a little irreverent because of the comparison, but if you think of what would America be without George Washington, that's something like, in small part, what, uh, a picture of what would the Jews be without Abraham. Nevertheless, the argument here is from superiority. Though Abraham is so central and so important, there was one that was more central and more important in the record than Abraham himself. And this is what was prefigured in Melchizedek. And we see this in context in Hebrews 7. Let's turn back to our main text today. It says in verse 8, um, let's uh, back up to verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. Do you see the argument here? Abraham was great, so people ought to pay tithe to him if he was the greatest. In fact, his descendants re received the tithes. Levi and company in verse 5. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. So Abraham's children received the tithe, but there was one who actually received Abraham's tithe. Verse 6. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. So he, uh, Abraham deferred, he submitted to, he was subject to, in this sense, the hierarchy, in this uh, sense, to Melchizedek himself. From Abraham and Melchizedek, bless him who had the promises. Verse 7, it is beyond dispute, and this is the argument, that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So if Abraham, that is to say, was blessed by Melchizedek, there is a sense in which Melchizedek was superior to Abraham. In one case, verse 8, tithes are received by mortal men, namely the Levites. In the other case, the one by whom it is testified that he lives. There's an immortal a sense of this Melchizedekian office. Verse 9, one might even say that Levi himself who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So you see what our author uh, shares with us. This uh, reference to Genesis 14 verses 18 through 20 is a prefiguring of the order, the higher order of Melchizedekian priesthood that this exchange personifies. This relationship between the patriarch, Abraham, and the king priest is, is uh, didactic. It's meant to teach and instruct us. It's a picture of the gospel before our very eyes. 
the entire official capacity of the Mosaic order with its priesthood, um, all of that was subordinate to this administration of covenant. This um, has many implications as we begin to see that actually the higher order of priesthood in Christ was pictured and prefigured all the way back to the Old Testament. Uh, Those who were true saints of faith in the Old Covenant could look to these moments and know that there was, to be expected, a priesthood that would transcend the mere slaughter of animals. Even their great forefather and patriarch deferred to this man, honored this one, and he received Abraham's tithes. Thirdly, under this higher order, Melchizedek personifies a higher order. I just wanted to draw to your attention an interesting historical note. Not only in the scriptures is this high order, higher order prophesied and prefigured, but in Jewish tradition, who Melchizedek was and what was to be expected would, was also postulated in their traditional documents. And, when the, uh, and some incredible light was shed on this when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in the last century. Listen to what this, uh, so just to set the the tone for these writings, these of course are not scripture, they're just something of a commentary and writing, speculative, postulating, what is the meaning of Melchizedek for us, Jews in waiting, who like Joel mentioned before, had been without a prophet for so long. Shortly before Christ came, there were these small sects of Jews that would quarantine or separate themselves from the hustle and bustle of society, like monasteries, they would record the scriptures, they would think deeply about their Jewish heritage, and they would write, they would speculate about the future. Who was Melchizedek to them? Well, we find some answers and some fragments of scrolls from the Qumran community that were preserved for thousands of years. This is some of what they read, it says, And concerning what scripture says, And this year of Jubilee you shall return, every one of you to your property. And then there's a reference to Leviticus 25.13. And what is also written, and this, is the manner of the remission. Every creditor shall remit the claim that is held against a neighbor, not extracting it of a neighbor who is a member of the community, because God's remission has been proclaimed. And then they reference Deuteronomy 15.2. The interpretation is that it applies to the last days. And concerns the captives, just as Isaiah said, to proclaim the jubilee to the captives. Isaiah 61, 1. This community was thinking about the future implications of what the year of jubilee symbolized in their law code. They associated it with the prophecies in Isaiah. There would come a messianic figure who would set the captives free, who would declare a new, glorious, and preeminent year of jubilee. We continue to read, and from the inheritance of Melchizedek, or uh, for Melchizedek who will return them to what is rightfully theirs, he will proclaim to them the jubilee, thereby releasing them from the debt of all their sins. He shall proclaim this degree in the first week of the jubilee period that follows nine jubilee periods. Then the day of atonement shall follow after the tenth jubilee period. Then he, again, the, these, uh, this order of Jews are speaking of Melchizedek, says, And he shall atone for all the sons of light and the people who are predestined to Melchizedek 
upon them, for this is the time decreed for the year of Melchizedek's favor. Isaiah 61, 2. It's modified slightly. And by his might, he will judge God's holy ones and so establish a righteous kingdom as it is written about him in the songs of David, a godlike being has taken his place in the council of God in the midst of the divine beings he holds judgment. And that's a reference to Psalm 82, verse 1. The religious context of the Hebrew readers of this letter would likely have known these expectations about this mysterious figure, Melchizedek, who appeared in the Old Covenant in just two references, Genesis 15 and Psalm 110. But as those who sat and thought and prayed and read the Scriptures presumed, they had a sense that there was something significant, an eschatological, a future, last day's significance about this one Melchizedek. Who was he? What would he do? They associated him with their Messiah. As you heard in those quotes I just gave you, they also associated him with redemption, with deliverance, with atonement, even the washing away of sins, with kingship, a kingdom, and even divinity, a godlike figure would come. There are 11 references to Melchizedek in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And this is powerful as even archaeology testifies to shades of meaning we can, uh, we can see in the cultural context that this letter appeared. And it's interesting even to see throughout history after Christ has come, the Jews are less orthodox in years following Christ's arrival than they were prior to. It's very interesting. You can read those references and think, Jesus, Jesus, He fulfills. That's what they were looking for. But later the Talmudic writings would reorient and, and rearrange and erase because they didn't want to bow to the Lord Christ. They weren't ready to submit to Him as their Messiah. But it's clear in all of Scripture. It's clear in the book of Hebrews. And chapter 7 expounds it according to the order of Melchizedek that Christ is the only one and will be the only one in all history who can fulfill that higher order of both king and priest. Which leads us to our second major point more briefly this morning. Melchizedek personifies the offices of king and priest. Turn with me to Jeremiah 23. There was an expectation in the, in the prophets of the messianic role. And it was difficult to understand how one man could fulfill them all. And so different theories abounded on what the Messiah might look like all the way along. But in the infallible word of Christ to which we now turn, we find in Jeremiah 23 ex messianic expectations recorded for us that are very illustrative in light of the Melchizedekian order. Let's read verse 14. But in the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. I think I have the, the wrong reference actually. Um, Yes, that's correct. Thank you. 33. Jeremiah 33, 14. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. 
In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. Do you see the prophecy? Do you see the expectation of the messianic order? It was twofold. It was king and priest. A branch would spring up from David so that the prophecy that he would never lack a man to sit on his throne would be fulfilled. But there was something additional, verse 18. The Levitical priest likewise shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings. Whatever we can expect about the one to come, we know that he or they, uh, some speculated they must fulfill two offices at least, king and priest. Priest, a branch for David. With uh, speaking to the continuity of the Davidic, Davidic lineage, but also priesthood, speaking to the continuity of the priesthood, were the messianic expectations. Secondly, under king and priest, it is also inter- interesting to note that some within, such as the or within the Quamran community, for instance, expected, in fact, two messiahs. The uh, the community that wrote. Some of, those in, uh, some of those commentaries that I read to you just moments before also uh, recorded and that they speculated in their writings that actually two messiahs would come. Uh, Hughes records of their writings, quote, The Dead Sea sect looked for the appearance of two messianic or anointed figures, one priestly, the Messiah of Aaron, and the other lay, or from, the, uh, uh, from the, those outside of the priesthood, kingly, in the Messiah of Israel. They called the one manifestation of Messiah the Messiah of Aaron, and the second one they called the Messiah of Israel. This was written in, in, in a collection called the Manual of Discipline for the Future Congregation of Israel. So you see that they were wondering, in fact, how this would take place. And it is curious, as we looked at the Old Covenant, to see the breadth of offices and the fulfillment, the role that the Messiah would be called to fill. It is impossible, in fact, to imagine that one mere man could do all of this. Perhaps there would be two, some of the Jews of old speculated. All of these questions, all of these speculations are put to rest in our text this morning. And we understand it when we see that Melchizedek himself personifies the priestly order of Jesus Christ. Melchizedek, in chapter 7, verse 1, it is said of him, he is king of Salem. We're back in Hebrews now. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And you notice we have two in one. Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of the Most High God. There was precedent in his unique office of old for the twofold fulfillment of these offices. And in fact, as the rest of Scripture unfolds, we see a third. That is to say, Jesus Christ and Christ alone in one man, fully God and fully human, is our prophet, priest, and king 
according to the order of Melchizedek. Third major point this morning, Melchizedek personifies righteousness and peace. This overlaps and builds on the twofold office of king and priest. The offices, respectively, refer to aspects or attributes of God's character. A king is called to rule in justice and in righteousness, and a priest is called to mediate and intercede to obtain peace and to establish relationship between God and His people. Both of these attributes are prefigured in Melchizedek and fulfilled in Christ. Melchizedek himself, that is to say, personifies righteousness and peace. Hebrews 7, 2 reads, And to him, speaking of Melchizedek, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is, again speaking of Melchizedek, he is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Uh, as we see these two qualifications or two attributes coming together, we're reminded again of the prophets. In Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of Isaiah 9 is coming together in His high priesthood. Joel referenced this in our call to worship this morning. You don't need to turn there necessarily, but I'll touch on it briefly. These two powerfully packed, theologically rich verses remind us that the office and the role of Messiah is many-fold, multifaceted, complex, and beautiful. Isaiah 9, 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Remember those two references. A child is born and a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. There's the kingly reference. That is, the rule, the righteousness, the order of justice shall be upon his shoulder. He will bear the weight of governing in truth. And his name shall be called. And then we have this catalog of attributes summarized and these identities on the Messiah. Wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Do we see the twofold here? Yes, we do. Righteousness and peace. Verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. We could just as well say of the increase of his justice or righteousness and of peace, there will be no end. Melchizedek personified, Jesus fulfilled righteousness and peace. 7b in Isaiah 9 goes on to say, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The multifaceted glory of the Messiah is prophesied in Isaiah 9, 6-7. A child will be born, speaking of His humanity. A son will be given, speaking to His divinity. After all, Christ is not just the Son of David, but the Son of God, and of the increase of His government, the justice and righteousness, and of the peace between God and man, there will be no end. What did the heavenly host herald upon the arrival of Jesus Christ in Bethlehem? Remember Isaiah 9, verse 7, the zeal of the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, will do this. The hosts were assembled for a special job that night. They were to proclaim 
Glory to God in excelsis Deo. Glory to God in the highest. Peace on earth and good will to men. Peace with those on those with whom God is pleased. This was the host of the heavenlies heralding the fulfillment of Isaiah 9 according to the Melchizedekian order where righteousness and peace were coming together in the kingly uh, call and office and priesthood of Jesus Christ our Lord. If you turn back to Psalm 98, we won't touch on it directly this morning, but you will find the coterminous attributes, if you will, coinciding alongside, running together. The extent of each is equal. That's what that word coterminous means. And those attributes are well described in all throughout the Scripture, but in, the, in Psalm 98, it's a particularly pointed example of righteousness and peace, both being the expectation, the exploits, and the attributes of the Messiah. And thirdly, this morning, under righteousness and peace, we have reference in the Melchizedek example to his person and a place. Moving back to Hebrews 7, the ground for righteousness and peace is expounded based on the meaning of Melchizedek's own name and also the area of his control or residence. He is first, in uh, Hebrews 7, 2b, he is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. The first part, melech, meaning king, and the second part, meaning righteousness, zedek. Um, there's something along those lines. If we go back to the Hebrew origins, we find that that is the meaning of his name. Melchizedek is identified in his character by his name, which means specifically king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. This term Salem is another variation of what is more common these days, shalom, king of shalom. The term shalom is an amazing word, that is, peace in the Hebrew, and it means, in fact, peace, but more, harmony, wholeness, completeness, prosperity, welfare, tranquility, wholeness, assembly of all the proper parts so as to be complete with integrity and all the necessary aspects perfectly meshed and operable. Not merely, that is to say, the absence of conflict. You know, we see the peace signs and the tie-dyed shirts and the activist movements of our day where people are growing their hair and taking off their shoes, you know, uh, metaphorically speaking, in these communes, hoping that, against hope, that we can just have uh, all the guns folded in half and all the bombs, you know, deactivated. And in this absence of conflict, that's about as far as the modern notion of peace goes. But in the shalom term, it is much more than that. It is wholeness, completeness, welfare, tranquility, promises of prosperity, and an assembly of, an, of the whole where everything is functioning as designed, not merely the absence of conflict, but the enduring reconciliation between covenant parties upon effectual satisfaction of covenant debt. And when that debt is satisfied, thus is established security, certainty, and for its security and certainty for eternity. And so the context here 
is there is a problem in our relationship between us and God. The covenant has been broken. But when that debt is satisfied and it is done eternally and with security and certainty and assurance, and the only way is through the high priestly office of Jesus Christ, then and only then do we have shalom. And this is what Melchizedek personified. Speaking of righteousness, Hughes, a commentator I refer to often in my Hebrew study, has this great quote which recalls Romans 3.26 and associates it with the revelation of Hebrews 7. He says, As king he, that is Jesus, is just, and as priest he justifies all who trust in his atoning sacrifice. That, brothers and sisters, is righteousness and peace coming together in Jesus Christ according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus, as our priest, is just. Uh, uh, or Jesus, as our king, is just. And as our priest, he justifies all who trust in His atoning sacrifice. If we go to Romans 3.26, we find that this is possible through the wrath-absorbing work of His shed blood. And in that way, He can be the just, He can be just and the justifier. Uphold righteousness and establish peace for those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Finally, this morning, Melchizedek personifies Son of Man and Son of God. In the Genesis 14 account, to this point in the record of Revelation, no other worshiper of Yahweh has been listed without his lineage also attending his introduction. All the patriarchs who came before him, it is shown clearly that they were the son of Adam, the son of Noah, and so on and so forth. It shows that they were, by virtue of their relationship to their family, born at this specific time in this specific lineage. There is one exception, though, at this point in the text, and it is for a sovereign purpose. That exception is Melchizedek himself. This is an anomaly by design. No other God worshiper, no other Yahweh exalter in the text is listed void of lineage prior to this point. But this is to show by way of object lesson, one who would be of unique order and a unique lineage who would come later. We find this later or expounded at great length in Hebrews chapter 7 and on into chapter 8, particularly with reference to the eternal nature and aspect of Jesus, that is, that is His sonship as Son of God. He is not just Son of Man, as Isaiah 9 says, unto us a child is born. But he is son of God. Unto us a son is given. The term with reference or the terms that are associated to the unique nature of his priesthood include its eternal nature. We find this in the context again. It says in verse 11, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest after the order of Melchizedek? goes on to say that 
when there is a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord has descended from Judah and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So we're speaking here of the unique nature of Jesus' lineage. But not only was he not from a lineage normally associated with priesthood, but it says in verse 23 that former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But his priesthood is, in, is unique insofar as verse 24 denotes, but he, Christ, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He is Son of Man and Son of God. This eternal, the uh, prefiguring of the eternal nature of Christ is also referred to in verse 8. In the one case, our author records that tithes are received by who? Mortal men, men who will pass away, speaking of the Levites. But in the other case, again, this is the reference to Melchizedek and ultimately fulfilled in Christ, by the one of whom it is testified that he lives. Who lives? Jesus Christ lives. Jesus Christ is resurrected, ruling and reigning on high. Hebrews 1 introduces him as the ascended Christ, who, uh, even now, this day, though he was spoken of in times past in many ways, and these last days has been, spoke, uh, has been revealed, that is, God's plan has been revealed by Jesus Christ himself, God's Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He, again speaking of Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The references to the forever nature of the priesthood of Christ are manifold in Hebrews. Chapter 7, verse 8, we referenced already here. We have this idea of last days. Again, in 6, 5, there's a reference to the age to come. And as the Bible conceives of history, we find Hebrews is no exception. There is this sense of a finality, of a direction, and of a purpose to all events for all time. And in this way, we see that the last day's age to come has dawned with Christ. And He lives. And the Bible conceives of this endless future, that is, the eternity, the eternity that we look forward to in Christ, uh, it conceives of it also encompassing shorter periods right now. That is to say, if you look back through Scripture, you find reference or you find these categories that help us understand where we are in redemptive history. There was the patriarchal era where God revealed Himself to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then there was the Jewish era where the covenant is given to Abraham and to Moses, and then that Mosaic order is instituted. And then there's a Christian era that dawns with Christ. But transcending all of these three is the Melchizedekian order. That is, in, uh, that is to say that in Christ, we can see that He has, or as we look to Christ and His office, we see that He rules over all of history. 
And so we can see that the eternal aspect of his priesthood is fulfilled in him and actually is the interpretive grid for all of history. Final thought this morning. I'll turn you back to Genesis 14 for this. Today is Communion Sunday. And the nature of our communion meal today should remind us of many things. Most prominently, Christ and His shed blood and His broken body. But also, a covenant meal is one that is historically partaken of in a particular context. That is, this meal signifies this morning a relationship and favor and the exchange of communication, that is, communion between God Himself and us. That is, righteousness and peace have been satisfied so we today can commune with Jesus Christ and that is what is symbolized. When we go back to Genesis 14, I want you to notice a detail in the text in verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. There's that reference in passing to this king of Salem, Melchizedek himself, meeting communing with Abraham over bread and wine. Now the commentators are divided on how much speculative or analogy to attach to this detail. But it seems to me that we cannot help but draw a few things about the significance of this moment. A quote from Jonathan Edwards reminds us that he thought as much. Edwards says, Another remarkable confirmation, Abraham received the covenant of grace was the fact that Melchizedek, the great type of Christ, met him, blessed him, and brought forth bread and wine. The bread and wine, according to Edwards, he saw them, uh, signified the same blessings of the covenant of grace that bread and wine does in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Last week, we referenced Matthew chapter 26. And in closing this morning... I'm reminded of the one who fulfilled the high priestly order of Melchizedek himself, the king and the peace, uh, the king and priest, in whom righteousness and peace came together. He also offered a meal to his disciples. He also served bread and wine. And he did so in this context in the Gospels, Matthew 26, 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins." Let us transition in prayer. O Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that there is, as it were, a covenant meal spread before us today. As we partake, 
in the bread and wine as it is before us even now. Let us be mindful that the reconciliation that Abraham enjoyed in being blessed by the high priest Melchizedek is even more manifestly fulfilled and tangible in our experience as we have been blood-bought and have been reconciled to God the Father through Jesus Christ, our high priest, our king, who shed his own blood, who served his blood and his body as the very means of our satisfaction of relationship with God, where his justice and our peace were both satisfied, where our king and priest laid down his life as a ransom for many who shed his blood to absorb that wrath that he might welcome in his elect and we might have adoption in Jesus Christ our Lord. Remind us, Lord, of these glorious truths as we partake of this meal this day. Lord, help us to proclaim through this act and through our testimony the glories of what our King has done according to the order of Melchizedek. I pray that you would open our eyes, remove dullness of hearing as we partake of these means of grace even this day that we might more clearly understand the great gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is in his holy name we pray. Amen.